Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. So it seems like uh, there are new funds being raised every day to invest in private credit. Angela Gordon is expanding further into distressed debt with a new fund uh, that has a billion dollars. That is the latest today. Bain Capital, among the most active with respect to raising money uh, successfully and deploying it. Joining us, we are so lucky to have Jonathan Levine, co-managing partner of Bain Capital, normally based in Boston, but gracing us with his presence here in our Bloomberg Active Brokers Studios. Jonathan, your firm oversees so much of this debt, $85 billion in assets under management. Are you concerned about the amount of money being raised, given the fact that there really aren't that many assets to buy? Well, I think you have to think about uh, the world more globally. I, You know, 10 years ago, if somebody were to ask us, about the market or were to ask us about credit, they would really be asking about the U.S. buyout business and the um, U.S. credit business. And really, um, we actually manage $108 billion, of which $41 billion is in credit. But that credit is um, senior and junior. It's, over, it's, it's in um, Europe, U.S., Asia, Australia. And the credit asset class has become quite nuanced in terms of the types of risk you can take, the types of liquidity you can take, and the geographies you participate in. And those are not as correlated as they were 10 years ago when the story was whatever happened in U.S. high yield was the entire story. So, Jonathan, we're we're 10 plus years into this economic cycle. You're the chief, uh, I guess, you know, chief credit investment officer. You need to really think about the quality of the credit. Where investment, when you think about the credit quality and deals that you're seeing now, how is it looking? So I think that the degree of difficulty has gone up. There's clearly larger use of pro formas, but I've you know made it clear that not all pro formas are, are good or bad. Now, and when pro, pro, pro formas, what are you talking about specifically? Um, forecast um, by the companies? Forecast adjustments in earnings almost always for the positive. Okay. Um, so I have yet to see one where somebody said our numbers are going to be worse in the future than they are today. And they really take three types. They take tangible um, uh, upside to earning that you can achieve and quantify. There's things that are dependent on growth. And then there's things what I, that I would call are highly ambitious market top type of behavior. So consolidating two factories, clearly quantifiable. Um, a software company that's growing quickly, you can't take last year's earnings and just grow, you know, run it out because there is some obvious growth. Things like pro forma future revenue synergies, I don't even know what that is, but I have seen that yeah, in a I pro forma. You, you, don't, you don't take that um, because... There is some margin of safety in there, and if you take every possible good thing that can happen to the company, and then the sponsor pays for that in their purchase price, and then you borrow against that, um, your margin of safety, if the economy slows down, has gone away. So one thing that people have said is that uh, private equity sponsors, uh, of which 
Spain counts itself among them. I know that that's not necessarily uh, your day-to-day focus as much as perhaps the credit mm-hmm. investments. Um, that their sponsorship has led to a uh, deterioration in the credit quality of some of the credit, particularly the bonds and loans that companies are, are issuing. Do you find that from the credit investor standpoint? I think that it is very much industry-specific, company-specific, and sponsor-specific. Um, sponsors like us have 100 people who go in and work with companies and really only invest in companies where we can add value and help change the answer versus other types of investors who may be participating in the upside beta of the market. And um, at this stage in, in any cycle, um, the marginal deal is probably not the best deal. Um, that does not mean that all the deals being done are troublesome, all the deals being done are, are, are bad. You just need to make sure that you're investing in areas that can weather a cycle, because I'm not saying whether there will or will not, but it's certainly more likely than it would have been 10 years ago. Um, two, you want to make sure that you're in industries and business models that are sustainable. Um, and three, you want to make sure that you have a capital structure that can weather a storm. So which, which industries are sustainable in the next cycle and, and which aren't? Well, it's interesting. Um, it used to be that technology was something everybody was scared of. And technology, everybody viewed as vaporware or internet concepts like from 01 when the bubble happened. And really, when you think about technology, there's lots of different types of technology. As a lender, software businesses that are subscription businesses, really good. Razor and razor blade types of technology businesses, really good. Um, What you have to watch out for is where people are taking equity risk with debt. Business models that have to reinvent themselves, where there's massive amounts of capital expenditures that are required, and you have to refresh the product on a very short life cycle. Tesla? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. That's what I mean, that I'm just, I don't know. Go <laughs> ahead, Paul. <laughs> no, so Jonathan, I mean, you know, one of the issues, you know, geopolitical risk, I know, is always a part of the credit checklist you have to deal with. But it just seems like maybe in the last couple of years, the geopolitical risk, whether it's trade tensions with China or European risks with Brexit, how are you, how are the folks at Bain kind of factoring that into your credit analysis? Um, so I think there's two things. One is the requirement for imagination almost exceeds the requirement for um, analysis because the sort of standard bell curve of what economic policy, trade policy, um, international treaties look like has gone out the window. And therefore, outcomes, I mean, if I'm sure you remember, you know, early on, people were like, there is no way Brexit will pass. Um, And that was the operating assumption. And then once Brexit passed, the markets cratered for a half hour and then bounce back because they're like, well, it'll, it won't get implemented and it hasn't been implemented. So what we try to do is think of a, um, an array of outcomes and test our hypothesis against that. And obviously you can't protect against every downside, but certainly being more broadly, being um, more broadly um, uh, analytical about tariffs, trade wars, um, uh, immigration, things like that are just a new requirement. So uh, just in, in about 30 seconds, which areas in the world do you see as the potentially most fruitful when it comes to distress debt opportunities? So uh, over the last several years, 80% of our investing has actually taken place globally outside the United States. Um, the 
the ways that uh, different economies work through the crisis has resulted in very different opportunities. And we've spent a lot of time working on non-performing loan portfolios coming out of European banks, which are still um, in need of capital. Um, and the Asian capital markets, which, um, as I said earlier about technology, it's right. not a thing, it's a lot of things, <laughs> provide a lot of diversity, whether it's distressed debt in in India, NPLs in China, or private lending in Australia. Right, right. Jonathan Levine, thank you so much. We have to leave it there, but we're going to definitely get you back in the studio next time you're in New York, which Please we understand happens back. often. Jonathan Levine, co-managing partner and credit chief investment officer at Bain Capital, talking to us about the private equity world and, and the credit side of private equity investment. Well, when trade tensions between the U.S. and China uh, really began to escalate several weeks ago, one of the U.S. names that came right into focus was Apple. Uh, Apple certainly exposed to China, getting almost 20 percent of its revenue from China. Plus, they also manufacture a lot of their phones and iPads and things in China. So clearly some risk there. Uh, let's get the latest from John Butler. John's a senior telecom services and equipment analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from uh, Princeton, New Jersey. John, there's actually a growing discussion that maybe Apple can source a lot of its products that were in China outside of China. How feasible is that, do you think? Yeah, thanks, Paul. I think it's very feasible. The question is, how much time does uh, Apple's main um, manufacturer called Foxconn, how much time does Foxconn really need to make that move? Um, in fact, I I suspect the move is already underway. You know, Apple is long overdue to kind of spread its bets, so to speak. And, and there are regions like Vietnam, for example, which are lower cost to produce uh, a good like the iPhone uh, than China. How long would it take for Apple to move its supply chain? Boy, it's hard to say, Lisa. I would say to really move 100% of the iPhone production out of China would probably take at least a couple of years. So in other words, that would be my guess. So it wouldn't immunize them from some sort of very near term move by China? Not immediately, but again, I suspect there's been some movement behind the scenes that we're not seeing. You know, the comment was made by a senior Foxconn official, so they pro he probably got the green light to say something, suggesting to me the move is already underway. Lisa, just uh, to answer, you know, just to uh, kind of go and show how the supply chain for Apple, how intense it is and how expansive it is. On the Bloomberg terminal, you can just type in the symbol uh, for Apple uh, and then put in the function SPLC for supply chain. And it is just, it's amazing how many suppliers supply Apple then how many customers Apple has, uh, truly a global company. So John, I think that one of the risks is, you know, when you think about it, you know, the, I guess a real concern would be, at least the most immediately, would be sales into China. Is there any sense that, Chinese consumers, maybe just from nationalistic perspectives, might be pulling away from Western goods and Apple? Yeah, I mean, that is spot on, Paul. I mean, that's really what I worry about most right now when I look at Apple and their risk. Um, China, they don't break out sales by country, but I believe China is Apple's largest country by sales, by iPhone sales. Um, that's Bigger than my, the U.S. My guess. 
bigger it's than the- probably um, that's a that's a good point. It, it could be second to the U.S. It's hard to say. Again, they don't they break out sales by region, not country. So by region, Greater China is just shy of 20 percent of sales. It's around 19 percent of sales in the latest calendar year. So. There's a lot at risk there, and there is, I imagine there is rising um, nationalist sentiment among Chinese consumers. And that can really dent sales of not just the iPhone, but uh, other Apple products. So I want to ask you, John, we were talking earlier about how the tech sector, tech shares in the United States have rallied the most in the past six days uh, since 2011. And I'm trying to understand how much of this is driven by fundamental improvements in the uh, backdrop geopolitical otherwise and how much this is just a knee-jerk response to, well, I guess people have stopped freaking out now. You know, my thought on that is a couple of things. Number one, Wall Street tends to look beyond the abyss a little bit, right? So. Uh, This latest announcement by Foxconn tells us that Apple can make moves to limit its exposure, and other tech companies can as well. That's number one. And I think number two, there's probably some hope that at the G20, the U.S. and China can come to maybe even a short-term agreement to take some of the pressure off. Because, as you know, the U.S. is as reliant on China as China is reliant on us. It's a two-way street, and it's in no one's best interest to let this escalate beyond where we are. Hey, John, just real quick, uh, what's the next thing that Apple investors should be looking for in terms of new product launches or anything like that? Also a great question. So this, they tend to do the fall refresh event. They introduce all the new iPhones in September. I think this refresh will be okay, but not great. But I'm really looking to 2020 for that new 5G iPhone. So I think next year is going to be a really big year for Apple, would be my guess, on the iPhone front. John Butler, thank you so much for being with us. As always, John Butler, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. One area of U.S. equities that have underperformed are the ADR, the uh, depository receipts of Chinese companies. I'm looking at Alibaba uh, ADRs, which are down nearly 20%. Our next guest says that's a buying opportunity. Let's bring him in. Danton Goey, he is a portfolio manager of uh, at Davis Funds, which oversees about $2 billion. And he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. So you actually are starting to see opportunities emerge in these Chinese stocks even though people are very concerned about the corollary effects of trade wars in addition to a slowing Chinese economy. Why? Yes, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yes, I think they are very interesting, uh, specifically because of the worries now of depressed valuations and the stock prices are down, even though the businesses continue to be very strong. And it makes sense. These businesses are focused on the Chinese consumer. They're not export-driven, very little international sales, almost 100% domestic sales, and the Chinese consumer remains a very strong uh, tailwind, a very strong story, uh, and the business continues to be very strong. Even in the recent quarters when there's been worries about the U.S. trade friction, 
Revenues have been up 41% two quarters ago. Last quarter, revenues at Alibaba, for example, were up 51%. So business is great. Uh, uh, the balance sheets continue to be very strong. Long-term demand forecast remain good. Uh, and right now, the valuations are down. So to us, as value investors at Davis, we think it's a great buying opportunity. So uh, give us a sense of how you think Chinese consumers uh, are thinking about the trade issues. Does it go into consumer sentiment, consumer confidence? Are you seeing any of those types of data points come in that might cause your consumer-centric story to a little bit of a pause? Yeah, I think from the consumer point of view, it's uh, not a huge worry. It's probably a bigger worry for Chinese investors. Uh, and maybe taking a pause in investment. But at the margin, of course, it is negative. Uh, and so it's not a positive. We do think, though, that uh, in the sort of short term, in sort of the next uh, two to four quarters, there will be a resolution uh, to the trade war. I mean, of course, no one knows uh, the future perfectly. But in, in this case, there is strong reasons why both parties, the U.S. and China, want a trade resolution. We are seeing a little bit of a slowdown in both economies. Uh, being impacted, and this is something that they can both uh, resolve on their own uh, by coming to an agreement. So we do think that eventually there will be an agreement, and this will be behind them. In the meantime, the companies, despite this, are doing well. So uh, some of the other companies, other than Alibaba, New Oriental Education and Technology, trades under the uh, ADR uh, ticker EDU, and then JD.com, uh, those shares, by the way, the ADRs have lost nearly 30% year-to-date. Uh, so uh, EDU, uh, New Oriental Education, is sort of the outperformer here, only losing about 12%. I'm just wondering, one question people have is the transparency of Chinese companies and concerns about really being able to dig into the finances, uh, given the sort of different accounting standards. How do you deal with that? Yes, that's a good question. You know, one of the ways we deal with that, and that's with any company that we look at, uh, but in China specifically, we only invest in U.S. listed ADRs or Hong Kong listed stocks uh, and no local A-share companies. The reason being that uh, here in the U.S., of course, we have U.S. GAAP and in Hong Kong, they use international GAAP. Uh, and so the, the, the listing standards, the accounting standards, uh, the transparency requirements, the corporate governance requirements are much higher uh, because they're listed here in the U.S. Uh, or in Hong Kong. And so that's one way that you can the other way, of course, is doing very in-depth due diligence, which is what we're known for. And so we'll go and been following these companies for well over a decade now. So we know all the key individuals. We've talked to all their competitors, the suppliers, uh, their customers, uh, and get a good sense of who they are uh, as well. But, you know, of course, there's always uh, risks there. And so we're always trying to match the numbers compared to what we are hearing uh, out there in the broader economy or with other companies. And so that's one good way uh, to, uh, to kind of minimize risk. So, Danton, you mentioned uh, as one of the supports for investing in China now, in addition to valuation, the, the strong Chinese economy. We know it's slowing, uh, but still, I guess the, the government is still talking about 6 6.5% growth. What is your sense of the economy in China right now over the next year or so? Yeah, it, um, it, it definitely is slowing. and It's been on a sort of a downward trend. You know, it used to be double digits, of course, then high single digits. Now we're approaching sort of more uh, mid-single digits. And even if, you know, some people always want to put a haircut on it, and that, I think that's reasonable in terms of uh, how much you believe the numbers, it's still, it's still good. You know, everything you look at, and even if you look at uh, non-government reported numbers, if you look at sort of uh, train loadings or electrical production or, uh, you know, miles driven or things like that, uh, those are all still very strong. And so all the sort of the, the non-GDP numbers sort of correlate with still a growing uh, economy. 
And our sense is that the government still has a quite a bit of firepower in terms of helping the economy along its way, meaning they have the ability to cut rates, which are you know, 200 basis points higher than ours. They also have the uh, ability to cut the reserve requirement at banks, which is the, the amount of banks, uh, amount of money right. the banks have to ca- keep, uh, and so it increases their lending uh, ability. So they have quite a bit of f- firepower to help the economy. They've been doing that. It has had an impact. And so they do have that impact, that ability over the next you know, year or two to continue doing that. Very good. Uh, Danton Goey, thank you so much. Uh, Danton's a portfolio manager for Davis Funds, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We- Well, the markets are discounting at least two rate cuts this year and maybe more in 2020. But just recently, we've had a couple of Wall Street economists say not so fast. To kind of square that circle there, we welcome our next guest, Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from Princeton, New Jersey. Ira, thanks so much for joining us. Again, a couple of economists came out and said, gee, maybe the traders are a little bit ahead of themselves. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very uh, in that camp, actually. I, I think that the market has gotten a bit of a, ahead of itself. I think that the, um, you know, the, the Fed, it, while it doesn't want to disappoint the markets, it also has to focus very strongly on the incoming data, both here in the U.S. and abroad. And while we've seen uh, you know, a few disappointing data prints, it's not obvious that the economy is falling out of bed and, and is likely to do so going forward. So I, I think that the market pricing right now for for a July cut is, you know, is setting itself up for disappointment, I think. So what in the data will the Federal Reserve point to to justify not cutting rates right now and defying market expectations? Sure. So, you know, I'm not saying that this is true, right? There's certainly a scope for some of the data to weaken over the next six or seven weeks before the uh, before the July Fed meeting. But if you look at, at where we are in on trends and things like retail sales running above 4% year on year, that's reasonably solid, although not at the 5% it was last year, but it's still at a solid reading. Um, you look at, at uh, a lot of the the inflation data we got this morning, for example, you still have uh, a PPI, X food and energy, up 2.3 percent. And if you get, you know, CPI tomorrow, that's you know close to 2 percent. Um, you know, th- those aren't the type of um, those aren't the type of numbers that will give the the Fed uh, too much pause. I, I think the key in all of this, and and again, they're going to be you know as data dependent as they can possibly be. I think in this intermeeting period from the June to July meeting, winds up being the June payrolls report, right? You get a rebound into the hundreds of thousands, so you get 125, 150,000 payrolls, and suddenly everyone's like, okay, maybe you know May was a blip, and and we're really on this more 125 to 150,000 trend, which is fine. Uh, that's what you need in order to continue to have the unemployment rate stable, if not uh, falling a little bit further. So, Ira, when the Fed does finally begin to ease, how do you think it will look? Yeah, so so I think when they ease, uh, you know, the I, I think the the rates market in particular is set up to uh, to potentially steepen a little bit. And typically, what happens when the Fed does start to cut interest rates, um, the yield curve steepens, and you wind up with some optimism that you're going to have inflation going up some point in the future because of the easier monetary policy. But but I think at this uh, this time we might not get the type of typical curve steepening that we've gotten in the past. So in 
in the past you've had curves that that steepened 100, 200, uh, 250 basis points. Um, I, I think that we get significantly less than that this time, probably uh, probably about half of that. And, and the reason being that we're starting from a much different uh point in terms of how much the Fed could actually cut. They haven't made the typical policy mistake of continuing to hike interest rates when the curve inverts. In fact, they stopped basically as soon as the curve inverted. So um, so, so they're not making some of the mistakes that, that they've typically made in the past. So therefore, there's not as much to go the other, uh, the other direction. Well, and you also mentioned in your recent research piece that people are starting to price in another round of quantitative easing. Did I read that correctly? Yeah. So, so the, the, one of the things that Jay Powell mentioned last week was that uh, we will at some point get to the zero lower bound again, which just makes sense. I mean, if we do have any kind of meaningful and prolonged economic downturn, the Federal Reserve cuts interest rates, you know, eight times, and the next thing you know, we're at the zero lower bound again. So what is then the next action? It seems that that um, quantitative easing would wind up being one of the first things that, that the market would expect the Fed to do after cutting interest rates. So therefore, you know, again, it's one of these things where if they're going to be buying a whole lot of 10-year notes and 30-year bonds, it's going to be harder for the curve to significantly steepen in an environment where the Fed might be buying a whole lot of, uh, of Treasury securities. So I hate to ask you this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, Ira. Uh, the president this morning once again was tweeting about the Fed and interest rate policies. Just give us a sense once again, kind of how you think the Fed, if at all, pays attention to such I have a funny feeling that they put their hands on their forehead and lean forward on their desks and say, oh, my goodness, not again. Um, but the, at the end of the day, we, you know, the, the, the Fed wants to be as independent as it can be. We know from there's a lot of academic studies, both from conservative and liberal uh, think tanks and, and, and academians that suggest that an independent central bank has better long term economic outcomes than central banks that are influenced by policymakers, because the, the thing is, elected policymakers, um, you know, like a president or like members of the House of Representatives, they care about the next election. They don't care so much about, you know, where are we going to be in five or 10 years. So, um, so, so rather than worrying about the short-term gains that you might get from, you know, interest rate cuts, the Fed is going to look through that and say, okay, what, what policies can, do we need to do in order to sustain the current recovery? And then at the same time, don't overheat. So we have to, you know, maybe step on the brakes even faster in the future, which, which would be a concern potentially in, in some situations. Now, you know, the current situation might be a little bit different, right. but certainly a year ago when they were hiking interest rates, it seemed that that, that was a risk that was on the table at the time. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for being with us. As always, Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.